1: For our podcast recommendation this week, I want to urge you to check out our friend Nicole and her podcast called True Crime South Africa. Just like the cases Maggie and I cover, her stories draw you in and have you biting your nails. She covers cases with care, with a focus on detail. And as a bonus, you'll love her accent please check out True Crime South Africa and leave her a five-star review. Tell her that Maggie and Allison sent you. Here's a little about her show.
2: South Africa, a country whose spectacular beauty and dynamic people are known the world over. But there's another side to our country and one that is rarely discussed in the detail it deserves. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, on True Crime South Africa, South Africa's first victim-focused true crime podcast, as we go beyond the headlines, focus on the victims, and explore some of South Africa's most heinous violent crimes. True Crime South Africa is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I don't know about you sleuth hounds, but the time between October to December is my favorite time because all of the best holidays are crammed into those three short months. But honestly, I haven't always been this way. My mom had a way of making the ordinary extraordinary for me as a kid. When I was little, I literally dreaded the arrival of autumn or fall, as we call it back home, when all the leaves would start to fall off the trees. But my mom always told me that if you catch a falling leaf before it hits the ground, you would get to make a wish. I have no clue where she got that idea from. But did I believe it as a kid? Of course I did. I would spend hours running around our yard chasing leaves as they fell from the tree limbs. That turned autumn into a beautiful time. Now, as an adult, I love when the leaves change colors and we get to live inside a world saturated in reds and oranges and yellows. I love when we get to plan day spent at a pumpkin patch looking for just the right pumpkin or for, if you're me, to take home to carve. I love putting on a spooky movie and removing pumpkin guts with my hands to carve faces into the pumpkins we bring home. I love turning my yard into a creepy graveyard for trick-or-treaters to walk through on Halloween. For many, the Halloween season is a time to let your imagination run wild. We plan elaborate costumes, decorate our yards and houses. We eat copious amounts of candy. Halloween brings out the kid in all of us. No matter your age, you can always find joy in the spooky season. But even though I love candy and the pumpkin patches and the leaves falling, Halloween is still a little bit scary for a scaredy cat like me. If you're a long-time listener, you know if I forget something in my car, I will run to and from the car if it's dark outside. If I'm home alone for any period of time, i lock the door that goes downstairs to our basement. I don't go downstairs alone. Basically, I'm scared of my own shadow. The scary movies I watch during the Halloween season don't help. But I can tell myself that these are make-believe. These aren't real. But they could be. A fun night spent with friends could turn into a plot of a scary movie, and that sleuth hounds is just what happened on October 30th, 1975. This is the story of Martha Moxley.
1: Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories
3: each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases podcast. And to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. So, Allison, um, our story takes place today in Greenwich, Connecticut, which Anthony, I don't know. Greenwich? I don't know. Greenwich. I think Greenwich. It's
1: Greenwich. Yeah,
3: it's Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Greenwich. Yeah. Why did I say the W like I don't know what I'm doing in my life? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a day, people. It's, it's been a day. It's okay. <laughs> but um, that's Anthony's new kick of where he wants to move. For a while, it was Colorado. Now, now it's, it's, Connecticut? it's Connecticut. Yeah, oh. mainly because I think he thinks he can convince me to live there because I love the Gilmore Girls, and that takes place in Connecticut. Oh, he's not—he's not, he's not going to convince me. <laughs> but the Moxley family did move to Connecticut from California only about eight months before this case takes place. And from what I read, they moved into, like, this very, like, prominent community. They moved into a gated community, which is fancy. Yeah. Called Bellhaven. And it actually had earned the reputation of being the wealthiest community in town. And it earned that name, basically. Okay. So, Martha's family actually were next-door neighbors with, like, a relative of the Kennedy family like a Kennedy oh. cousin yeah okay so like the Kennedy's
1: the Kennedy's
3: yeah so Bellhaven seemed like the perfect place to settle down you're in a gated community you live beside a Kennedy like what else could you want with life yeah I can only imagine though myself as a 15 year old and my parents telling me we're literally moving across the country Mm. like imagine you're a little sleuth hound if you're like we're moving to Washington state
1: oh my gosh I could be like uh I'm changing dinner plans and like the world is coming to an end so (laughs) full-blown
3: tears Probably some yelling involved. Like, I would have been not a happy person to be around. But Martha was not, obviously, the drama queen like I am. Because she just kind of, like, rolled with the punches. She was voted best personality in middle school. And so she was sure she would be able to fit in and she was able to fit in. She used like that winning and fun personality to make a rather large set of new friends at her Connecticut home.
1: Good. Because I know that's hard. Yeah.
3: Like Anthony's family moved from Pikeville to um, Central Kentucky when we were like, I think the summer before our senior year. And he was like, yeah, I'm not going. And he stayed with his grandma because <laughs> like, I mean, I which I really can't blame him because right. you have one year left.
1: Mm-hmm. But I mean,
3: his sister was like, you know, right at that age where it's like starting to be kind of harder to make friends mm-hmm. and like, you're just like really awkward. And so I'm sure that was really hard for her to just pick up and move.
1: Right. So
3: I would have hated it as a kid, but Martha, she did fine. Good. So we are going to meet, like, briefly, like, an extensive group of friends. So some of the names can kind of, I think, kind of run together because um, even I got confused, like, as I was typing to make sure that I wasn't kind of messing up people's names. But the, like, main group of friends that we're going to talk a lot about are Michael and Thomas. Some articles called him Tommy. Most of them call him Tommy. Um, some called him Tom Skakel, and these were the relatives of the Kennedys.
1: Okay, so the next door neighbors.
3: Yeah, so they're next door neighbors. Yep, and it's like, just their houses are, like, closer than, like, your house to your neighbor's house type. Okay. So, in an article called "The Tragedy of Martha Moxley," the 15-year-old who may have been bludgeoned to death. So, there's a little oh.
1: There's
3: little preview. We got a little little preview. The author states that Ethel Skakel, the brother of the father and his wife Anne, had seven children. So Michael and Tommy were one of seven. Oh. And I, because remember the Kennedys aren't they Catholic? Yes. Yeah, and like Tommy or no not Tommy Michael actually talks about that like later on um, mm-hmm. but yeah they have a lot of children and I think predominantly I mean maybe they wanted I mean I'm sure they wanted all seven
1: kids that came out bad but like oh, I think no religious yes. reasons you know yeah no birth yeah. control and all that stuff so Tom and Michael are like same age as Martha yeah so
3: Martha's 15 Tommy is 17 and Michael is 15 okay Yeah, so, like I said, Michael um, has some anger issues and some, like, other issues that kind of plagued his young adult life. And he would later tell um, reporters that it was chronic illness, alcoholism, and a repressive Catholic moral and sexual outlook that would cause a household filled with turmoil as he grew up.
1: So they did not have... This is stemming from Michael.
3: Yeah. So like the... Grass, I guess, is not always greener on the other side. So they did Mm -hmm. not have, like, this perfect life that you would picture that they would have had. So he's saying, like, their house was plagued with chronic illness. There was alcoholism. They had a repressive Catholic moral and sexual outlook. And that it just kind of created a lot of, like, angst and turmoil in their home. Mm. And that really wasn't made any better when in 1973 their mom and would die of breast can- or brain cancer she was mm-hmm. actually relatively young from what i read mm. so we have the illness of the mom with brain cancer the dad rushed in Is an alcoholic. After mom dies, his alcoholism worsens, Mm. and the kids were all seven of them were regularly left at home alone with no supervision and obviously Mm. unlimited funds. So that's not a good
1: combo. Yeah,
3: yeah, a recipe for disaster. And Michael would actually say that an even more intense level of chaos came to roll on their household after his mom died. Because, again, they are just left alone. Yeah. So the Moxleys only lived just about 150 yards away from Michael and Tommy's family. And... As you can imagine, the Skakel home had a constant stream of teenagers coming and going thanks to that lack of parental supervision.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you could party it up. Like, nobody's there. Nobody's going to stop you from doing anything.
3: And, like, I read that they had, like, an RV on their property, and that was, like, the place where the kids like to hang out. And I can only imagine the horrific things I would have been traumatized by that probably went on in that RV as a 15-year-old.
1: Since we're and, rule followers and I'm sure there wasn't yeah. a lot of following of rules happening. Yeah.
3: But Martha spent many days and nights with all these scenes that frequented frequented that home. And like you'll kind of see here in a little bit, like, um, we kind of get a glimpse into how Martha's parents kind of feel about this new crowd of people that she's hanging out with because uh-huh. she did kind of find herself in trouble. Some, I mean, it's not like she was like, you know, like a horrible kid and was like doing lines of cocaine on the right, kitchen right. table, but she was just a regular teenager. Um, but she kind of did find herself in trouble from time to time as a result of the rambunctious things that this group would do. Okay, So, As I was writing this, and I know that I even texted you, like, I kind of struggled with how to start, which Mm -hmm. I feel like I kind of always do, Um, but mainly because I first wanted to start with Martha's diary entries, but it just didn't, like, make sense that way. Because her Mm -hmm. diary entries are, like, literally, like, you feel like you're just, like, chatting with your friend. Mm -hmm. They're, like... Like, you can hear her in these. And I was
1: never, like, a diary person. Were you a diary oh,
3: person? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it was bigger. Of course, I'm older than you are. But it was it was kind of big to have a diary. And I know I had one. And I made sure I wanted one it, with a lock on it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, somebody's going to care enough to read my diary, you yes. know? Um, and it was, like, this plastic lock. I'm actually gonna just like break it off but um but yeah and it was big to be like dear diary today I you know did this or you know this boy looked at me and you know whatever but I, I
3: tried several times like I even had like I can remember this like tiny purple like electronic journal like thing that I had and it was like literally the size of like a little calculator it wasn't like anything super fancy but like I really tried to get into it but I just never like it just never stuck with me and like I even Uh know like a lot of adults that like journal but I right. just never got into that either. I mean, I write down things and I write a lot, mm-hmm. but like never just like, Dear Diary, today the school served taco salad with corn. Who does that? Right. Like I right. never really did that.
1: Which yeah, mine was a real mostly whatever today. boy I thought was cute at the time. And now, now I just make to-do lists.
3: Yeah, that we that never get, get done.
1: done. <laughs> so it is like a continuing journal.
3: Yeah, yeah, there you go. But Martha, like I said, she did keep um, a diary. She documented so much about her life that I felt like I knew her a little bit by the time I got done reading the portions of the diary that I found online. I mean, you know, she is 15. So as you can imagine, her diary is filled with boy drama, friend drama, um, a lot of insights to the things happening around her. Mm-hmm. So when Martha was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death... In the wee morning hours of October 31st, 1975, investigators turned to her diary for clues. And these pages of her diary, so the ones that we're getting ready to read, would eventually be read at the trial of her neighbor, Michael Skakel. And it is, like I said, within these pages that we are getting ready to dive today.
1: So we... We do have a suspect, and it is that neighbor.
3: Yeah, so um, her case isn't a traditional case that we would normally talk about Mm
1: -hmm. because
3: there, which I I guess we've actually covered a few like this. There are many who believe that um, this case is already solved, and there was a trial, and there was a conviction, but um, the case is now listed as unsolved. Okay. And we'll talk, we'll talk about all that. So this okay. case could have easily been like a two-parter mm-hmm. because there's just so much information. So I tried to condense it all so we could do just a, one, a one-er. a So within the pages of Martha's diary, we meet obviously several of her closest friends. And I told you all at the beginning that there's a lot of people that we briefly meet through the pages of this diary. So we're going to kind of meet a lot of people and kind of talk about them in and out throughout the episode. But over the next several minutes, um, you're going to be introduced to people she spent the summer with, um, those she got in trouble with, and those that she was kind of crushing on. And we're going to pick up in her diary as summer is coming to a close and school is starting.
1: Okay, let's dive in. Okay,
3: on September 4th, 1975, because remember, school started later,
1: back in the day, the good old days. Well, and, and in the Northeast, it still does. What is this? Yeah, you didn't know this? But it goes through the end of June. Oh, no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it, it starts later, but it also ends later.
3: I'm literally, like, April tired, and it's not even November. Like, I don't know that I can make it through the end of (laughs) June. (laughs) So, on September 4th, 1975, she wrote, Dear Diary, Today was the first day of school. It was pretty good. I have all my opens with Peter and Christy. Tonight, I went pool hopping with Jackie, Michael, David, and Tom Skakel and andy pew when i got home my mom was really ticked at me she might not let me go to the allen brothers concert with peter
1: mean, like just typical yeah here's what i did yeah mom was mad yeah Yeah. typical
3: 15 year old thoughts yeah oxygen would cite several entries in the weeks leading up to her death that kind of captured like how she felt about her friends her neighbors, and some, like, vies for her attention.
1: Hmm. Yes. Love interests?
3: Yes. So, in a passage on September 12th, Martha reflects on an evening she spent with her friends and with uh, Michael and Tommy. So, she said, Dear Diary, today was nothing extra special at school. Peter was being his usual self. Oh, by the way, pause my quote. Um, there somewhere in some of these is like one or two bad words. So, oh, parents, if you're listening, just know there may be a few wordy dirds in here. Okay. Okay. So Peter was being his usual self. Me, Jackie, Michael, Tom, Hope, Marine, and Andrea went driving in Tom's car. I drove a little then, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap because I was only steering. He kept putting his hand on my knee. I oh. drove some more, and Margie and I kept yelling out the sunroof. And then we went to Friendly's, and Michael treated me and got me a double, but I only wanted a single. So I threw the top scoop out of the window. Wasteful, but uh,
1: yes. <clears throat> don't get rid of ice cream
3: yes mistake number one yeah then i was driving again and tom put his arm around me mm. he kept doing stuff like that jesus if peter ever found out i would be dead i think jackie really likes michael and i think maybe he likes her maybe because he was drunk but i don't know oh so,
1: so he's like, 15 drinking um oh yeah
3: also, how many people are
1: in this car? Like, what kind of car yeah. does he have? It's a clown car.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: like, everybody piles out. Yeah. So, it sounds to me, because she was talking about, like, mom might not let her go to the concert with Peter. Mm-hmm. And then she says, like, she's in trouble if Peter ever found out that Tom is flirting with her. So, she must be in a somewhat kind of relationship with Peter, but Tom is flirting with her.
3: Yeah, and see, this is where I, too, like, got confused in my research. So, it does sound like she's in a relationship with Peter and that Tommy likes her. But then, mm-hmm. later on, you kind of also get the impression that Michael does. But she huh. kind of never led, really led on to that, that right. I got from it. Maybe you can read more into it than what well, I Well,
1: no, I mean, he did buy her ice cream. That's so, true. I mean, that's a sign of love right there. It really is. Buying somebody sweets, mm-hmm. I mean, it sweet would win me over. Sweet. Me too.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.
3: On September 15th, Martha recalls hanging out in this RV that's on Michael and Tommy's family property with Jackie and Michael. so like remember Jackie likes Michael and right. Martha thinks Michael may like Jackie. Okay. She wrote that Michael told her, quote, "He doesn't like Jackie, but he leads her on so much I believe
1: I can't believe it." Mm, so, like, so he says I don't like her, but then he like flirts with her. Yes, but then based on what you said, is he telling Martha that he doesn't like Jackie because he also likes, he likes Martha? her?
3: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Later on, she recalls. Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real asshole in his actions and words. He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on when I don't like him except as a friend. I said, well, how about you and Jackie? You keep telling me that you don't like her and you're all over her. He doesn't understand that he can be nice to her without hanging all over her. Michael jumps to conclusions. I can't be friends with Tom. Just because I talk to him, it doesn't mean I like him. I really have to stop going over there. Oh. So, So like, by this point, she's, yeah, she's done. Yeah. And it would be just a little over a month after that diary entry that Martha would be found dead in her backyard.
1: Mm, So, she's, oh, she's in her backyard.
3: Mm -hmm. Now, I recently took a quiz on Facebook because that's what I do when I'm procrastinating other things Uh that I need to be doing. Mm Mm-hmm. And it wanted to know what accent I had. Obviously, I know what accent I have. (laughs) But I wanted to know if Facebook could tell that based on the way that I say things. Okay. It can. But (laughs) it asked what we call the day, like October 30th, the day before Halloween. Like, I put that I have no name for this day. It's October 30th. Yeah. Yeah. But Mischief Night was an option, so I guess that must be, like, a Northeastern thing, because I had never heard of it until that Facebook quiz, and then, like, a few days later, in Martha's case. So maybe that's, like, a Northeastern
1: thing. Mischief Night.
3: Yeah, and, like, from what I could tell, the name is like basically what happens you just are mischievous you do like ding dong ditch you throw toilet paper into trees like you know harmless pranks that I would Mm -hmm. never do because I would be scared but Martha on October 30th um like her and her little friend group have plans but on that night in 1975 something changed
1: So, it's not so harmless.
3: No, it is not harmless. And according to Chilling Crimes, on Mischief Night, Martha went to a party with her friends, Sheila and Helen, around 6 30. So, we have two more friends. Mm -hmm. And it was reported that that night was very cold. And, you know, it's Connecticut and it's Mm -hmm. almost November. So, yeah, that makes sense. And Martha supposedly left her house wearing like a blue um, parka jacket. And her mom, Dorothy, like, tells her to be safe. Mom is home alone because Dad John is on a business trip. So, it was just like a typical day or okay. night, I guess. So, according to Chilling Crimes, Dorothy would spend the majority of the night painting. But around, like, 10 p.m., she heard a lot of ruckus and kind of stopped painting for the night. Almost as if she was like, holy crap, I've been painting all day. It's 10 p.m. Like, I need to go to bed.
1: Mm. Ruckus, as in like hearing kids in the neighborhood, or
3: yeah, okay, yeah, like mischief, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. So she this showers. Is, I'm getting like, I don't know, bad vibes about like uh, the purge or something, <laughs> like yeah, you need to same. Your doors because it's mischief night,
3: yes, same, and like, or like. Maybe like Michael Myers type. It's just Yeah, creepy. this is
1: creeping me out. Mm-hmm.
3: So she goes to bed, like she showers. She turns on the 11 o'clock news to wait for her husband to get home. And when John got home, the two started a movie. But, you know, being a typical mom, Dorothy like fell asleep mid-movie. Oh, I'd have been asleep before he got home. Yeah, I would have been asleep by the 11 o'clock news. So.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: literally Allison said today what time do you want to record and I was like well can we do it earlier because I'm trying to get eight hours of sleep
0: tonight
3: (laughs) (laughs) so you know Dorothy woke from her sleep um a little bit later on that night slash like early Halloween morning and Uh kind of felt like something was amiss like you know a mom thing yeah so she goes in to check on martha and her bed is empty it was around like two o'clock in the morning and she's like my kid should be home by now right where the heck is my kid so in in a panic which i feel again any parent would do she wakes up her husband and asks him to go look for martha
1: Mm -hmm.
3: so he couldn't find her and naturally and sensibly the two began calling her friends and i'm sure dorothy's like surely sheila knows where the heck martha is like maybe martha just decided to stay with her she didn't call and let us know you know Mm -hmm. she's rationalizing all of this right um you know i'm sure that they were just trying to kind of like convince themselves that you know everything's fine right when dorothy reaches sheila you know i'm sure that She's in her mind, like, Sheila's going to be like, oh, she's right here. Here you go. And, like, she's going to get to hear Martha's voice. And, like, the two Mm -hmm. would scold her and then say, like, you need to come home right now. Or we're coming to get you. But Sheila didn't know where Martha was. Hmm. No idea. But she did have a valuable piece of information for these panicked parents.
1: Were they at the party together?
3: So Sheila told Dorothy that... After the party, because they go to the party together,
1: okay. She
3: and Martha go to the Skakel house to hang out for a bit. So this party is is, next door. Yes, and so I'm sure the mom's like, "Ooh, thank God!" Like she's just next door. So she stated that she, Helen, and Martha were actually at Tommy and Michael's house for a while, and like she even told the the parents. That she had last seen Martha with Tommy. She reported to Dorothy that the two were making out. And I read in one article that the two were reported to have been like kissing so hard that they fell behind a fence. And this was Mm -hmm. around like 930 at night.
1: That seems a weird detail to tell parents though. Like to yeah. tell your friends' parents, yeah, they were making out. Like I yeah. feel like that's something. If you're good friends, you take it to the grave.
3: Yeah, take it to the lie like. Of that. I just,
1: yeah, I don't know. Or I don't you know. It just, just seems like, odd.
3: I saw Martha with Tommy, and just like end it there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> around nine thirty. <930. laughs> yeah, that seems an odd detail. Yeah, to me.
3: But you know, I'm sure Dorothy was relieved knowing that. While Martha wasn't at Sheila's house, she was at least at the Skakel house. And so, of uh-huh. course, she's then like, I'm going to call like Michael and Tommy. Yeah. Right. So she calls several times, apparently, in one article. And each time, 18 year old Julie tells Dorothy to call this man, this friend named Jimmy. So, uh-huh. another friend in their friend group. Um, Because a lot of the people left the Skakel house and went to Jimmy's house.
1: So I'm guessing this Julie is Tom and Michael's sister. Yeah. So she's basically sending them in another direction. Yeah. And like, like, how frustrating is that? Yeah. That would be frustrating.
3: One, you're already mad because your kid isn't home when they're supposed to be you're panicked because you can't find your kid and now mm-hmm. you're frustrated because you've called a friend who told you to call a friend who told you to call a friend yeah so it's like just yeah. a big like goose chase
1: hmm
3: dorothy does call jimmy's house jimmy's mom was the one who answered the phone to give disappointing news yet again She Hmm. told Dorothy that Martha wasn't home, wasn't at her house. In fact, neither was Jimmy, and she had no idea where he was.
1: Hmm. And
3: like at this point, all avenues have been exhausted, and Dorothy calls nine one one to report Martha as missing.
1: Gosh, yeah, I mean she's really tried to find her.
3: Yeah, and so while she's waiting on police to arrive, she does what I would have done and I feel like what any decent parent would have done she walks over to the Skakel house because she's like hey my kid was seen over here yeah, maybe it's right next door. like yeah it's right next door maybe she's in like this RV that they hang out in they probably live in a mansion so maybe she's in a bedroom that like was overlooked or something like that so when she knocks on the door a hungover barefoot michael answered the door still in his jeans and t-shirt And he told Dorothy the same thing as everyone else, that Martha wasn't there and he had no idea where she was. Hmm. So Dorothy's like, can you search the RV that you guys hang out in? Can, like, can I come, like, like, go into your yard and look to make sure she's just not, like, maybe asleep on a chair? She's not asleep in this RV. But Mm -hmm. her request was denied.
1: Oh, I'd they're be like, busting up through there. I'd be, like, going yeah. to the RV. I don't care.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't even been asking. I would have just been yeah.
1: going. Yeah.
3: Um, but they're like, I'm. you know, you don't need to do that. We'll send out, like, one of the employees that, like, I'm sure, like, their butler or something oh. um, out there to check for you. And so this uh-huh. employee... Goes out, comes back a few moments later, and says that Martha wasn't in the RV and that he saw no signs of her. So Dorothy leaves the house empty handed.
1: Again, I don't know if I'd take somebody else's word. I think I'd have to see it with my own eyes.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I would probably say that, like, okay, well, if there's nothing back there that you're trying to hide from me, like, why can't I go back there? Exactly. So a broken hearted Dorothy returns home and like as you can imagine, friends of the family flock to their home as news of Martha's disappearance spreads. Because we're mm-hmm. now like early morning. Like, you know, this is
1: October thirty first. Yes,
3: on Halloween. Because yeah. like she wakes up at two AM on Halloween, Martha mm-hmm. isn't there and all the phone calls take place. So we're like in the morning of Halloween. hmm Um, so I'm sure, you know, they're there to offer comfort, maybe to help look for her. Um, you know, walk around the neighborhood, that kind of thing. Sadly, Allison, though, later on that day of October 31st, around 2 30 in that afternoon, Martha's friend Sheila made a horrific discovery. Oh, no, yeah, she found Martha's body under a large pine tree when she cut through the wooded portion of the Moxley backyard. Um, Martha was lying face down with her pants and panties pulled down around her knees. Um, Now I did read that there was no sign of any like sexual assault. Yeah. Um, But she had been beaten to death. Her face was littered with cruel bruises and her hair matted with blood. Um, And oddly there were pieces of a broken golf club beside her body.
1: What? Like, was that used on her? So,
3: the autopsy report indicated that she had been bludgeoned, and she'd been hit so hard with a golf club that the golf club actually broke, and that part of that golf club was stabbed through her neck.
1: Mm.
3: Now... This golf club was traced back to the Skakel residence.
1: Oh.
3: Yes. Actually, well, we'll get there. So, police basically okay. theorized that Martha has been hit, like, in the head from behind as she walked up the driveway to get to her house. So, I'm assuming that... Like, she is on her way home. Somebody comes up and hits her um, in the head and then drags her body to her backyard and leaves it behind a pine tree.
1: Mm. Like,
3: that's what most reports that I read seem to agree on.
1: Why would they have drug her to her backyard?
3: I'm wondering if it was, like, kind of more secluded and they, for some reason, maybe thought that they wouldn't look there, which makes no sense. But that's really the only way I could rationalize it. Mm, right. Now, like I said, the club was proven to belong to the Skakel family, particularly um, the late mother, Anne. Like, her initials were even engraved in the handle.
1: So, whoever did this and left the club there is either trying to frame someone or is not very smart and forgets that there's an engraving.
3: Right. Like, I mean, it's a six-iron club that's missing from And set, and then it also has the initial engraved. So, like you said, you're either an inexperienced criminal or you're, like, trying to set somebody
1: up. Right. Exactly.
3: Crazy. Oddly, though, a search warrant was never served on the home. Uh, Never. And why? You know, I didn't read, but I think we can guess why.
1: So, is it, like, wealth like yeah. yeah yeah
3: um but you know tommy was the last person to be seen with martha per the people mm-hmm. that were at the house and so mm-hmm. police of course you know go to speak with him and he's honest he tells police that he was with martha until around nine thirty that night when he went back inside to watch a movie with like their friend slash tutor which mm-hmm. i thought was weird
1: mm-hmm. and
3: work on a report over abraham lincoln one that his teachers never claimed was like ever assigned to him
1: oh
3: which is also weird Mm. so he says martha was last seen by him walking towards her house okay and like police attempt to pull school records for both the skakel boys tommy and michael and those attempts to pull the school and mental health records like fail we they never get access to those Kenneth, the tutor-slash-friend that Tommy was okay. supposedly watching the movie with, um, obviously was also investigated, like, later on in the fall of 1976. He said he had no idea where Martha was. The night that she was murdered was his first night at the Skakel home. Um, he would fail several lie detector tests, which, what does that mean? Again,
1: I you know. know. Yeah.
3: Um, but he was never charged in connection to the case, like ever. Hmm. When questions about when questioned about his whereabouts that night, though, Michael told detectives that he left his house around nine fifteen p.m. and drove to his cousin's house, returning around eleven. And like we know, those types of alibis are kind of tricky because, like, how long were you at the cousin's house? How much time right. were you by yourself? Like.
1: No yeah. one can really verify that type of stuff. And listen, there's sometimes I'm sitting there and ten minutes pass like it's one and there's times I'm sitting there and ten minutes pass like they're thirty. So preach. Yeah.
3: And like really Martha Moxley's case sat cold for years until nineteen ninety one. So nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety one. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's a span.
3: Mm -hmm. And remember that I said earlier that the Moxley's neighbors were related to the Kennedys?
1: Yeah. Well, in
3: 1991, William Kennedy Smith was tried and acquitted of rape. And it was then, so that's like another cousin, I think, is what I Mm -hmm. read. So it was then that rumors surfaced that he was present at the Skakel House the night that Martha was brutally murdered. And like... This rumor would, like, dry up and fizzle out. Like, it died. Um, But it did lead to, like, renewed
1: energy in Martha's case. Yeah. Like, new interest in it. Yeah. Hmm.
3: So, the Sutton Associates, which was a private detective agency hired by the dad in 1991, conducted its own interviews of the killing. Which, to me, if you're hiring a private Uh. investigator, it seems a little fishy. But, like, you know... I've never been rumored to murder anybody. So, right.
1: So, yeah. I don't, so I, don't I really know what you no do really have no experience. Here. Right. Yeah.
3: But the Sun report later leaked to the media that both Tommy and Michael altered their stories about their activities the night of the murder. And Michael again comes into view, but this time as the main suspect.
1: Oh.
3: So, in an article published on all that's interesting, I read the following. Quote, there were two private investigators, Jimmy Murphy, a former FBI agent, and his assistant, Willis Billy Krebs, a former New York Police Department lieutenant. When the two interviewed Tom and Michael Skakel about their activities on the night of the Moxley murders, it turned out both boys had lied to the police. (gasps) So, Tommy Uh, does a no-no Mm-hmm. Tommy would disclose that it wasn't 9.30 when he last saw Martha outside his home, but actually closer to 10. And before Tom went back inside, he and Martha engaged in mutual masturbation outside his home. Oh, I don't really understand. Again, you know, we didn't know what Devil's Lettuce was, so. Right. And,
1: again, I'm always, like, the, "Mm, let me believe the best in people. Yeah. And I feel like with her diary entry where she said, like, when Tommy was just putting his hand on her knee and around her shoulder when she's like, oh, my gosh, what would Peter think if he found out? Like, this mutual action Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit to me. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And maybe, like, you know, making out and masturbate. You know, maybe he was just really drunk and, like, he thought things happened that maybe didn't happen.
1: I don't know.
3: But Kre- Krebs says that, um, like... Tommy actually began to cry as he was talking about this to his lawyer, like, as he was talking about this before the lawyer, like, like, you can't say anymore, like, you've said enough. Hmm. Meanwhile, Michael told investigators that he didn't go to bed when he arrived home from his cousin's house around 11. He says that he actually climbed a tree outside Martha's bedroom window and masturbated to what he saw inside her window.
1: What? these boys
3: yeah lots of
1: hormones right there oh my goodness but you know why that still doesn't make any sense to me either because then that would seem to assume that martha is home right. at 11 because what else would he be looking at
3: unless he's like has a really good imagination
1: mm. which, which i guess it could be
3: yeah so author and journalist dominic dunn Got a hold of the investigator's report and passed it on to the state inspector Frank Gar, who'd previously been a detective on the case. He had always kind of been suspicious of Michael, but his suspicions were like kind of dismissed. Like, this, uh-huh. report, like, you know, at the beginning, like everybody's like, oh, Michael's not dead, but this report kind of gave his theory new momentum.
1: Mm.
3: So now, like. We're kind of seriously looking into Michael. And in a strange literary turn of events, it was actually a fictional story published in 1993 that would push police to look further into the case.
1: Well, literature in action.
3: In this quote unquote fictional story, air quotes, the plot seemed to resemble Martha's case. Um, and this caused like a lot of suspicion and rumors again began to circulate in Martha's small town. Then again, uh-huh. in 1998, another book is published and it names Michael as the murderer and points out numerous mistakes made by the original police investigation. Hmm. So I read that even in the years before these two books came out, police detectives, Stephen Carroll and Frank Garr, as well as police reporter Leonard Levitt, had become convinced that Michael was the killer.
1: So, like, they're
3: kind of working towards that, and then these books come out, and it, like, kind of puts things, I guess, into a new perspective. Helps that angle. Yeah. Yeah. And in 1998, a one-man grand jury and an investigator were assigned to review the case of Martha. And upon examining the evidence, Judge George N. Thim ruled that there was enough to charge Michael with her murder. All right. So getting somewhere we're getting somewhere. We have several former schoolmates of Michael's of Michael's that come forward. Um, and they are like, I want to testify because while Michael was attending like a school, specially aimed at rehabili- rehabilitating troubled youth, because he had like, I think had a DUI and like something else. So, Uh like, he was at this, like, specialty school. They say Michael had confessed to them that he killed Martha. In fact, this one particular schoolmate, Gregory Coleman, testified in a pretrial hearing in June of 2000 that Michael told him, quote, I'm going to get away with this murder. I'm a Kennedy. (gasps) And Coleman went on to say that, quote, he, meaning Michael, had made a comment that he was trying to make advances towards this girl, and that this girl was not complying with those advances, and thus he drove her skull in
1: end quote and that drove to me seems important because you drive a golf a ball. golf club,
3: yeah Hmm. Yeah. But Coleman would never get the chance to testify in Michael's trial in 2002 because he actually overdosed in August of 2001.
1: Mm, That's sad. It was
3: reported when Dorothy came to the door that morning, right, that Martha Mm -hmm. is missing, that Michael was panicked. He said on a recording, quote, I was still high from the night before, a little drunk. And then he goes on to say... That he thought to himself, did they see me last night? Like, he says this out loud. And he says, like, oh, no, 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 you took that wrong. Like, I meant, did they see me masturbating in the tree outside Martha's window? Uh, But prosecutors are like, no, no, no. We think he means, did someone see him beating Martha with a golf club?
1: Right. And it could be either.
3: Right. And Michael really had no solid alibi. Why would he want to kill Martha? There was really no physical evidence leaking him to the crime. We just had like that one golf club, but like,
1: Mm -hmm. you know,
3: anybody in that household could have had access to this. But the prosecution is able to paint a picture of a jealous teen infuriate, infuriated after being rejected by his crush, Martha. He's under the influence of drugs and alcohol. He has, ex, like, he has the ability to get this murder weapon. And on June 7th, 2002, the jury came back with a guilty verdict, and he was sentenced with 20 years to life in prison.
1: Wow. And I will admit, I mean, all of those things are circumstantial.
3: Mm-hmm. And, like... You may be wondering why we're talking about Martha's case today, since it's not really, like, unsolved. While Michael was in prison, his lawyers and supporters fought for his conviction to be overturned. Because, like you said, a lot of this evidence is circumstantial. You're mm-hmm. saying a lot of things you can't really prove. Like, can right, you prove you can't he back was it jealous? Up. Yeah. Right. So, four appeals were filed. All of them were denied. But then on October 23rd, 2013, Michael was granted a new trial on the basis that his defense attorney provided him with constitutionally deficient representation. Mm. And as a result, um, he's actually released on a $1.2 million bail in
1: 2013.
3: That's a big bail. No, but it's a big family, so. Right. So he is granted this new trial by Connecticut Judge Thomas Bishop. And he, this judge, ruled that Michael's attorney failed to adequately represent his client. When he was first convicted, and on November 21st, 2013, Michael was released on that bill. Um, he was monitored with a GPS device. He could have no contact with the Moxley family, which why would he want to have contact with him? Right. Um, he had to check in periodically with his parole officer over the phone. He wasn't allowed to leave the state of Connecticut unless granted permission. Um, he was later granted permission to relocate him and his family to New York, which I cannot blame him because I'm sure... Mm-hmm. A lot of rumors yeah. were going around town. Um, in 2018, Michael's murder conviction was vacated by the Connecticut Supreme Court, um, in which they ruled that the, his attorney had failed to call an alibi witness. He, they are saying that Michael wasn't given a fair trial. Mm. Then, according to Medium.com, on October 30th, 2020, 45 years after the murder of Martha, Connecticut Chief State's attorney Richard, however you say his last name, I will butcher that.
1: Colangelo?
3: Colangelo? There there you go. Stated that Michael would not be retried. Hmm. So, he says they're looking at evidence, he said in a quote, That, looking at the evidence, Your Honor, looking at the state of the case, it is my belief that the state cannot prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, the state is going to enter a null. Hmm. So, the null will exhaust Michael of murder charges in 13 months.
1: So, like, next month. So, basically, a month from now,
3: Yeah.
1: murder charges will no longer exist on his record.
3: Right, and it's not known whether this case will reopen again. So that is why we're covering Martha's case today, because she truly has yet to be served justice. Wow. This year, as you hang up your Halloween decorations and put out your jack-o'-lanterns, I urge you to remember Martha. Through the trick-or-treating and candy-eating, I urge you to remember Martha, because she deserves to be remembered. While we laugh at silly costumes and enjoy time with friends, Martha's family grieves. So this spooky season, don't take for granted the moments you have with your family and the memories you're building. Her brother was interviewed by Fox News and told the reporter that his family bears no hatred in their hearts. Only a desire for justice to be served. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to Coffee Cases Podcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. week.